This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello, I'm Luke Turner. Welcome to Why, the podcast that explores the huge questions that exist at the back of our minds. I've spent most of my life obsessed with music. It got me through my teenage years, saved my life a few times, and then I turned that obsession into a career by becoming a music journalist. Throughout that time, I've been driven not by nerdy fascination with record labels and catalogue numbers, but how music makes me feel. From being transported back to the family car by Enya, to the chaotic exuberance of teenage years with Suede, or how Leonard Cohen has guided me through life's choppy waters, listening to music is closely connected to both my memories and emotions. There's both the shock of the new and the comfort of familiarity, feelings both happy, sad and all in between. As I've gotten older, I've wondered why it is that a particular combination of melody and rhythm can have such a profound effect on my brain even when there aren't any words involved, though that can help. But what's the science behind how music connects with our emotional state of mind? Today on Why, we're asking, why does music make me feel? Music is in masses of different areas of the brain, and when we look in brain scanners, when people are improvising, when they're performing, when they're listening to music, we see huge amounts of activation. Catherine Loveday is Professor of Neuropsychology at the University of Westminster, author of The Secret World of the Brain, and regularly appears as an expert psychologist on BBC Radio 4's All in the Mind. We know from research that music and dance actually do make us feel very connected, and there's been a couple of studies that have looked at brain activity and showed synchronised brain activity in people that are performing together or even listening to music together, and also high levels of things like oxytocin, which is a neurohormone that makes us feel connected and bonded. So Catherine, if it's right, let's start with quite a broad question. Why does music make me feel... Well, that's, that's not only a broad question, that is a massive question because there are lots of different theories about what's going on. I think that's also what drew me to researching this because it's such a powerful thing, isn't it? So one thing, one obvious thing is that music is reminding us of stuff. So you talked about some of your favourite songs just then and music takes us back in time. It takes us back to a whole range of events. But music also has some very inherent qualities. It taps into our communication system. So rhythm, timbre, melody, all those things 
things you were mentioning are part of our communication system. When I'm talking to you, I'm using those elements to communicate my emotions. So there are certain features of music, like the idea of coming home and and kind of moving away from home, building expectations. And there's also some really fundamental stuff around things like major and minor chords. And we see that you can see major and minor chords in the way people speak, and we can see different types of brain activity. I think that's really interesting. You're talking about the idea of communication, you know, that's, which is a very fundamental thing that makes us human, the ability to communicate with other humans. When we look at the brain, can we see that a lot of different parts of the brain are activated by music? Is this why it's so powerful that it just does so much to our minds? Yeah, in fact, one thing you can do is you can give me the opportunity here to dispel a myth that music is just in the right hemisphere of the brain. And that's just not true. Music is in masses of different areas of the brain. And when, when we look in brain scanners, when people are improvising, when they're performing, when they're listening to music, we see huge amounts of activation. There are some that are particularly activated. So we see a lot of activity in the sort of areas of the brain, the auditory cortex that process laughter and crying and screaming and those kind of things. But we also see a lot of activity in the cerebellum at the back which is about movement and rhythm and wanting to feel like we're getting up and dancing and particularly in the limbic system which is the emotion centres of the brain and the hippocampus which is memory. Is it fair to say that music affects more of the brain than nearly anything else? I don't know. I think that's a big statement to make but it certainly does impact a lot of different areas of the brain and you can see a huge amount of activity. How do we see that? Is there sort of brain mapping studies or how do you analyse musicians or, or people when they're listening to music? What's the science behind it? Actually, it's quite hard because people's music choices are very, very individual. So I could put you in the scanner with a particular type of music that does absolutely nothing for you. And I'm not going to see the same kind of activity as if I gave you music that is really meaningful to you. So one of my favourite studies was where they asked people to bring in a piece of music that gave them the shiver down the spine. So I don't know if you know where you get a certain moment in the music and it just gives you that real kind of physiological response. And it's very measurable. We can see it in people's sweat. We can see it in the heart rate but we also can see it in the brain and they asked people to bring this music and they tracked what was happening in their brain as this kind of climactic moment happened and they saw a trigger across something called the reward pathway in the brain and it triggered an area called the nucleus accumbens which is this kind of pleasure center in our brain so it was almost like a kind of like a musical orgasm if you like. That's amazing it's funny when you said that about they ask people to bring something that gives you the shivers. I instantly thought of a piece of music that did, and I got that experience. It's amazing. Yeah. That recall is so powerful, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's incredible that actually we found in our research people don't even need to hear the music. They can just think of it to get some of the same effects. That's amazing. And some of this is linked with memory, isn't it? Yeah, that's something that I've been researching a lot. I find it absolutely intriguing. And I mean, I'm intrigued by how quickly people recognise pieces of music. We only need like a half second to recognise music we know well. But what I'm really interested in is the memories, the autobiographical memories, the moments from our life that pop into our mind when we hear a piece of music or even think about a piece of music. And we found that people are very likely to have music that reminds them, for example, of road trips or of particular moments in then times in their life, particularly people. So we've analysed Desert Island Discs and done several of our other studies and we find that people are very often likely to choose music that reminds them of a specific person. But also these kind of very special turning points in their lives. I love that Desert Island Disc research. Mm. That was really fascinating. And, And in that research, you sort of found that 
a lot of people who've been on the programme, it's, it's very connected to their teenage years. Yes. I mean, I mentioned sort of Suede and Leonard Cohen in, in the intro, and they're yes. very much, for me, music I still love today, but, you know, that was where I discovered them, and it meant a lot. Why is it that we feel like that in our teenage years? Is it to do with hormones and sort of sexual desire for the first mm. time and all those, that soupy feeling? Do you know, it's it's almost certainly a mixture of, of a whole load of things. So one of the really important things is that our brain is probably really good at encoding things at that point in our life. It's really tip-top condition. But also it's a very emotional time in our life and we tend to use music to manage our emotions in during that time. And our researchers particularly looked at what we call self-defining moments. So music that links to a particular kind of almost eureka moment, a time when we made a really key decision about who we wanted to be, where we wanted to go, where we want to live. And people often choose music that takes them back to those real self-defining moments or a period that is self-defining, like just moving to university or something. Can you tell us a bit about the reminiscence bump, which is a fantastic term. Can you explain that to us? Yes, so this is the idea that people have a preference for music from their teenage years. They also recognise it better and they're also more likely to have memories associated with music from that time. And we have found really consistently that it peaks around 15. Now we see this for other things like films and books and, and you can even trigger it with words and so on. But with music we find it's a particularly powerful. We found it that it's bigger for music than for most other things and it peaks at this sort of very specific point in 15. It's anywhere between 10 and 30. But we also have a cascading reminiscence bump. So we also tend to have this recognition and, and better sort of connection with music that comes from our parents' generation. And, and you mentioned Leonard Cohen, you know, so in some ways maybe that's what's going on there. And even our grandparents' generation. So it kind of feeds through, through the connection of people. Do you think there's a communal aspect to that as well? That it's actually it's quite a nice thing about music. We can. I went to see Depeche Mode last mm. week, and there was people who were a lot older than me who got into them in the in the eighties. Yeah. People my age from the nineties, and then a lot of people who are a lot younger with their parents, and that kind of that cascading reminiscence and the shared memory and the shared exaltation of live music. That's a really powerful way of bringing people together. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it's so interesting that people often, when you ask them about music that's important to them, they often talk about music that is about connecting with other people. And, you know, we know from research that music and dance actually do make us feel very connected. And there's been a couple of studies that have looked at brain activity and showed synchronised brain activity in people that are performing together or even listening to music together. And also high levels of, of um, things like oxytocin which is a, a neurohormone that makes us feel connected and bonded. That's really interesting. We think about that in the context of the dance floor, which is, has a sort of a lot mm. of utopian speaking about it. And then sometimes you can be a bit cynical about that and say, well, you know, acid house and club culture is fueled by ecstasy, but maybe the ecstasy and the MDMA is picking up on what's already there and just heightening it somewhat. Yeah, I've thought about this quite a lot, actually. One of the things that happens when you have a sort of four on the floor type, very regular beat, particularly now with the sort of electronic beat that is absolutely, you know, totally regular, is that that is stimulating a regular brainwave. So you're, you're having a brain activity that's pulsing with that beat. And often if we're moving with that beat as well, we're heightening that. So we're almost creating a particular state of consciousness by kind of evoking this particular brainwave but with, with this very, very regular activity. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So, so everything works in sort of physical, the emotional, the surrounding people and, the, the, and everything can work in 
sort of partnership. Almost. Yeah, we, we're very rhythmic creatures. And so when we can kind of tap into a rhythm like that, I mean, some people have argued against it, but it makes total sense physiologically that you are pulsing the brain from lots of different angles at exactly the same sort of pace and rate. That's absolutely incredible. I am wondering, though, if we're going back to that cascading memory mm. and this idea of reminiscence bumps and so on, can all of this stop us being curious for new music? I love listening to new music, and I can get a bit frustrated with some of my peers who just moan. You know, people moan about music not being as good as it was. I think the 60s was held up as mm. this sort of greatest music ever, and it's all been in decline since by some people in the media. Yeah. And it's like, it's not, it wasn't the greatest ever. You were just young when you heard it, and it was the first time this music existed in a mainstream way. Do our brains sabotage our curiosity, do you think? That's a really interesting question. It has been explored. Someone called David Hargreaves looked a lot at this concept of what he called open-earedness and this idea that it changes over time and that we become... In fact, he showed that in teenagers we become very closed-eared because we, we kind of really lock into what we're listening to at that point and we block out other things, but then we become more open-eared again. But I don't know that that's necessarily the same as we found in our research that people are very, very bad at recognising music music from beyond the age of their 30s. So when they're from the point onwards after 30, even if they say they like it, it just doesn't seem to encode in quite the same way. We just can't. We just don't seem to be very good at doing that. <laughs> and actually, I, I looked at this even with classical music and uh, we did a, a study with Radio 3 where we asked classical listeners to choose their favourite recording of six well-known classical pieces. And people were choosing a recording from their reminiscence bar. It's not even just wow. a piece of music. They were drawn to a particular recording and for them it was the absolute best recording. So we do get very kind of nostalgically pulled to that period in our life. That's really interesting. And, and, and is that partly why music can help in a therapeutic context? I'm interested to know about how music can be used to help people with dementia, for instance. Yeah, I think the thing with music is that it's very powerful way of communicating. So at one level, we don't even need to be playing a particular type of music, but music in itself is a way of communicating with somebody who, where maybe language is becoming less functional and, and sort of, for example, in autism and other conditions like that. But of course, we can use that memory stuff to tap into someone's past as well. And what you can do with music is that you can use... The sort of music, if, you know, if we were to play somebody something from when they were 15, music that they liked at that time, then they may not have any conscious memories. It may not be enough to evoke actual conscious memories, but it will still make them have the feelings that came with that, that time in their life. Oh, right. So it's about it's about summoning something deep within them rather yeah. than going, oh, I remember then that I did this this thing. That's, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah, and there is research that shows that older-term, longer-term musical memories are more robust. They're less likely to be impacted by things like dementia than other memories are. I mean, is there an ethical element? where Has this been studied in sort of brain mapping? Is it possible to do that with people with dementia and playing the music and so on? Or is it more sort of based on studying their responses? Yeah, most of the work is studying responses and it's quite varied because there are different ways to look at it. You can look at mu people playing music, listening to music, taking part in music. They can be passive, they can be active, but there is a very sort of consistent finding that it improves well-being. I do have a little caveat, which is I think we have to be really careful that we don't see music as a complete panacea. There are a small number of people who just don't respond to music at all. But the other thing that I am really passionate about is 
that we can't make an assumption about someone's musical past. So you've told me what music you like, but I don't know that until you tell me. And and I don't know, what music do you really hate? What's something that you really can't... Well, where do I begin? (laughs) Um, I'm not a big fan of auto-tune. Okay, so if you had music that had a really high Um, amount of auto-tune on and you were forced to kind of listen to it, you were in a captive situation and you were forced to listen to it round and round and round, how would it make you feel? I I would feel like I'd been captured by the SAS. Exactly. and I was being tortured. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is the danger. I think we have to be really careful to monitor how somebody is responding to music and not to make the assumption that music per se is great because we su- have such individual relationships with music. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. So we've heard that music becomes intertwined with our life experiences, which explains why the music we listen to as teenagers stays with us forever. But I'm wondering, if we can get over the reminiscence bump and remain open-eared, why do we still get emotional when listening to music that we have no specific connection to, or even have never heard before? We are inherently responsive to musical sounds. And it goes back to this idea of language and communication signals and so on. I think there is still quite a heavy cultural element. So there are some elements of musical communication that are deemed to be fairly universal, like if something's picking up a tempo and it's getting faster or if something is very high and then becomes very low, you know, those kind of big changes are fairly universal and will affect people culturally. But actually, most things are at least have a broad cultural sort of aspect to it. So within Western music, we are used to particular scales and there's a great example of how we we have this kind of need to to kind of come home so if i if i kind of go yeah nearly so you i think that was a bit flat but never mind but you have to kind of you know if you hold it at that point there's this real sense i need to come back so we learn this sense of where we are in a scale and and when we're moved away from that point in scale we we want to come back to it and when we land on it we feel pleased and and there are certain elements that become very quickly learned as part of a sort of almost a language a feeling of finality or a feeling of moving away and certain combinations of notes are inherently sort of more difficult to listen to than others and so some will evoke a feeling of slight unease others will make us feel very comfortable some will make us feel sad some will make us feel happy some of those are fairly universal others are sort of culturally learned i think it's interesting that i just instinctively did the note. I didn't yeah. even think about that. It's yeah. very odd. And I'm wondering like, if we go back into sort of deeper human time, 
I mean, maybe this is a, a sort of slight hypothesis or something, but could it be argued that rhythm was used for long distance communication? Whereas when I've read about ancient instruments, you'd find feather bone flutes and so on mm. in what seemed to be sacred spaces in caves, often where there's resonance, because resonance was something mm. that ancient people would, we, we take it for granted in buildings, but for ancient people, that would have happened in very small number of places. So you often find these instruments in caves where there's, where there's paintings, wall paintings, for instance. So, so are we t saying that there is a sort of, maybe some sort of spiritual thing and a communication aspect to music that's been with us as we've evolved as humans right back thousands of years? Certainly the, the evidence is that music goes back forever, really, for as, as long as we can establish anything you know there are bone flutes that have been found from prehistoric times and so on and like you say cave drawings and things but I think also the human voice you know we've always had a human voice and even if you look within our own development we use the human voice to communicate with music before we have words and there is this theory that that music was our communication tool before before we developed language that's one theory Oh, wow, that's and amazing. So that it's such a fundamental part of our communication. And if you think about it with a baby, you, you, you can have very, very quickly, you can, you can sort of communicate with them just by kind of, oh, oh, and, mm. you know, yeah. all of these are just melody, pitch and rhythm. It's interesting to look at these cultural aspects mm. of music and how, you know, we, there are, we've talked a bit about this sort of universal connections we might have or shared experiences mm. in Western music. But I find it fascinating if I, if I listen to non-Western music, mm that can be totally different and it's it can often seem to western musical ears to be discordant mm. but mm. really to to where the culture is coming from isn't at all and so we've all evolved in sort of different directions mm. and and i find that a very cheery as someone who likes supposedly difficult music you can say well over in africa you have a band like kanona number no. 1 who make very rhythmical atonal sometimes music out of junk mm. and it's a celebratory mm. music of the poor um, whereas if somebody was doing that here it would be called industrial music and mm. i find that very interesting can we talk a bit about how those cultural strands work Yes, yeah, so I think of it a little bit like language. So we all have language, but our language, and we all inherently and very automatically pick up language, but that language is defined by our culture. And, and some of the same things that influence how our language develop also influence how music is developed. So, for example, one thing that affects how music is developed is uh, literacy. So if you can't write things down, if you don't have a music literacy, then you tend to create music that's a little bit more repetitive, that it doesn't have such a, a kind of long span and, and it affects the structure of the music and um, because it has to be passed down through ear. So there are loads and loads of things that happen in our history that will affect how we develop, how the music has developed within that culture. And then, of course, you get lots of cross-cultural references. So there are theories, for example, that things like the blues note came about because we tried to combine one scale with another scale and then you start to have notes that are somewhere between them. Do your studies show these differences in emotional responses between genres or cultures? Is it, has that been sort of studied in depth? Actually, we're currently carrying out some research to specifically look at some of those cultural differences because it's something that just hasn't been looked at enough. We do know, for example, that with major and minor chords, that broadly speaking, most cultures will see those as happy and sad. But there are a couple of cultures that see it in reverse and see it the other way around. In terms of particular genres, I think what really fascinates me is having done this now for, I don't know, over 10 years, there is no consistency in what people choose as their favourite genre or their favourite music. I mean, it just are not songs or genres that jump to the top. Everyone develops their own taste in their own genre and their own love of different types of music. 
Are you seeing it change with the generations now with, you know, when, when, when I grew up, there was a sort of a canon of music. Mm. There was limited ways of getting music. There was very yeah. defined by genre. At my school, you were either into metal or dance music or indie mm. music. It was very narrow. Mm. Whereas now kids are growing up where they feel they've got everything all yeah. at once. There's no historical context. It's YouTube, TikTok. Mm. You see that with these TikTok hips that happen that suddenly, you know, very young people are just suddenly obsessed with a song from the 80s that was quite obscure. <laughs> are you turning this up in your research? I think it's still quite early days to see that. And I tend to look at still older people because I'm interested in older musical memories. But certainly a lot of people now are talking about how this is going to shift things. My instinct is that people will still continue to have this love of the music they listen to in their teenage years. I don't think that's going to change. And I think you go back in history and you'd see the same kind of thing. But what that music looks like is going to be different. It might be much less genre specific. And also, you know, we will have had particular key songs that might have been in adverts or whatever. So we will have had the same thing to some extent, certain songs that jump out because they just were a phenomenon. I mean, what's that, that sea shanty? You know, that oh, yeah, the up. Weller Man, is that yeah. the one? Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> going to be a whole load of kids yeah. that, you know, get into their 60s and still hear the Weller Man and just have a reaction to it. Yeah, my 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 missus uses that as a lullaby to our little baby. Right. So, you know, he he's going to have He's stuck that. with it now. Yeah. And, and, and they were saying football songs, I'm forever blowing bubbles. I yeah. sing to my son, I'm blackmailing him into, <laughs> musically blackmailing him into being a West Ham fan. <laughs> and I'm, I'm also interested in how this differs between your casual music fan or mem mm. member of the public and the musician. Can you sort of see when you're analysing these, these through observing or through experiments, a difference in how the musician and the non-musician responds to music? Yes, we have specifically looked at that a couple of times now. And what we find, for example, is that there is a bigger reminiscence bump in musicians and it tends to be a little bit earlier. But also, interestingly, musicians are more likely to describe music as being important to them because of something to do with the music. So they're less likely to say a specific memory. If you push them, they do have memories, but they're much more likely to say that they prefer a piece of music because of something to do with the quality of the sound. So there is probably a different way that musicians engage with music. I don't think they won't have the memories, but there's more. it's more analytical, typically. And putting you on the spot slightly mm. as you're a musician yourself, are there bits of music that make you emotional, that are your reminiscence bump? <sighs> I mean, funnily enough, yes, I mean, I have, I, you know, I'm definitely an 80s girl and I, and, but I also love things like The Who and Pink Floyd. And interestingly, I have music that I hated when I was a teenager and I really love now. And I think this is quite common. We saw this in a big study we did and I absolutely hated country music. I couldn't bear it and I have a sort of very <laughs> secret love of it now because my dad listened to it endlessly and it just kind of takes me back to him. But I would have absolutely just been so embarrassed I still am a little bit but I would have been so embarrassed if, if I'd been caught listening to anything at 15 so that's really interesting that we can, you know, when we're partisan and, and judgmental mm. and snooty as a teenager then gradually as we get older we mellow a bit. Why is that? Is it just because of ageing or is it more complicated? No, I think it's to do with identity. It's it's that we are in our, those teenagers, we are defining our identity and we have to define our identity as different from our parents and we have to define our identity as an in-group. These are the people, these are my people, this is my tribe. And my tribe would 
absolutely never listen to that kind of music and they would never wear those kinds of clothes. And once we have formed that identity and we feel a bit more confident in who we are, we're more able to step outside of that that ring again. We're not conscious that we're doing it, but you absolutely see it with music. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. So, music is for life, not just our teenage years. Shaping and reflecting our emotions from birth to old age, helping us learn to communicate as babies and also to remember as our power of recollection slips away. This is hardly surprising, as music has been at the core of our human story for thousands of years, shaping our collective identity, but also, when taste comes into it, making us who we are as individuals. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Professor Catherine Loveday. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more scientific symphonies, psychological songs and mysterious melodies soon. And thank you to everyone who's already been spreading the news about this show. If you enjoyed this episode, do tell your friends. And you can follow us on social media. Links are in the show notes. Likes and shares really help to spread the word. I've been Luke Turner asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Luke Turner and was produced by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by Jim Parrott and our theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production.